Stories move hearts and hearts move impact. Slingshot Stories. 10 to 15 minute episodes built around what we believe to be really practical key areas of impact that are going to help you grow in your understanding of what impact is and how you can accomplish it. Everybody's on planet Earth for a reason. Find your sweet spot, get off the bench, and get in the game. Welcome to Slingshot Stories, a series produced in collaboration with Journey to Impact and Slingshot Memphis. I'm Ed Gellantine, and I'm co-hosting today along with my partner in Impact, Jared Barnett, the CEO of Slingshot Memphis. And today, we're going to talk about good intentions and impact, or maybe this is our version of how to keep from hurting when you're trying to help, right? So tell me, Jared, why is giving with the heart alone in impact not enough? Yeah, I think the simplest way I would say is that it's it's typically not enough in anything we do, let alone you know just philanthropy. And so I use all sorts of other resources and, and insights to help make even the most mundane decisions, right? Which gas station do I to? Well, I look at the price and kind of use that to think about it versus just the one that I think looks the coolest or feels the best. Um, you know, and, and that translates up to all sorts of other things, right? Like I don't go to a doctor just because I'm friends with him and I think he's really good. I go to him because I trust that what he does. So I, you know, I wouldn't go to my friend if he's a pediatric surgeon to help me with something around cardiology, right? right. Even though he's a great doctor, it's just, that's not how I do it. And so I think the reason there is it, it, it's just, it's never enough um, in these cases. And we can always supplement that all right, with again the the goal of what we want to accomplish, right? And so hearts are necessary. I'm a huge believer that you can't have an impact, you can't help alleviate poverty without the heart and and desire and care for the people that were um, who are experiencing poverty. But if that's all we bring, we're leaving something on the table in terms of achieving what we could. Right, and we're going back to outcomes, right? Um, heart, I think, is critical, right? Because when you run into those inevitable roadblocks. That's where you have to have the faith, I think, the heart that I will persevere because the stakes are too high. But if you go at it just with the heart, I feel like you run into more of those obstacles than if you're using your brain. You know, I, th- I think a lot of, of water in Africa. We've had a lot of uh, conversation about our shared experiences in the continent of Africa. And that was one of my first I guess, experiences, exposure to impact, and water was always coming up. Because if you think about a lot of the challenges that have plagued the continent of Africa over the past 50 to 100 years, a lot of them, I would hazard a guess, 75% of them would be solved with pure water, right? But then when you go to execute it, and this goes back to our last couple of, of, of sessions in this series on data and Um, metrics. But when you go to execute it, you realize there are a lot of problems. And one of the very first ones that I saw, Jared, was Westerners, whether they're from Europe or the U.S., bringing in their equipment, their engineers, and digging these wells in these villages that were in deep levels of poverty. And sometimes maybe not even poverty, but just not what we as Westerners would consider um, wealthy. Yep. And they would build these wells and they would work for a year or two and then they start breaking down and then nobody knew how to work on them. Nobody knew how to get the parts. The parts were way too expensive. 
And then you have no water and you go back. So they've tasted, if you will, this clean water and its benefits, but then it crumbles within two years and then you end up causing more pain. For me, and and by the way, I would say that the water industry has learned a lot uh, over the past 10 years, 15 years maybe. There have been a lot of impact-minded people asking metric and data-driven questions. How can we do this better? And having great impact. But that was the poster child for me. That was my first sort of experience of, of the heart driving impact and ending up causing a great deal of damage. Share with us a couple of, of stories or examples that you guys have seen in your research of some common decisions that needed the data along with the heart to make it work. When it comes to you know poverty alleviation, a lot of it deals with the paradigm that you're coming with and, and the proximity to the problem. And so I think there's a lot that can kind of fit within those, those two uh, framings. And so a lot of times what we'll see is someone that says, well, hey, this worked really well and pick a random city that's not the city you live in. And say it worked well there. You know, let's right. just take that and bring it here. And you know, they have a lot of heart. You know, they say you know that lot of desire and passion, but without understanding why it may or may not have worked in that city and what those factors were, and understanding why it may or may not work in the city you're in, whether that's Memphis or otherwise, you're hoping right that there's those same things there. And so a lot of times you get a lot of fanfare. I right? don't. Hey, they're gonna bring this to the city and we're going to do this great thing. And it gets there and it, it's a dud, right? right? And it's not because the people weren't trying. It's not because, you know, of all the things you could think of. Maybe it was, you know, people were being selfish or there was corruption or there was this. In some instances, that may be true. But I think in most instances, we just didn't do the additional work to say, okay, well, why did this model work here? What from that model might work in our city and what might not, which is a harder question I think people forget to ask. Uh, and then being able to customize that for a specific need in your city so that you can do that. So that's one thing that I see a lot of times is saying, oh, it worked there, it's sure going right. to work here, right? You see that sometimes too in a more personal level, right? Where it's like, well, hey, I'm really good at finance. So I should be able to come in and tell this nonprofit, like, the, you know, use the same principles I use in my business and it should work the same for you. And I'm guilty of that, by the way. <laughs> well, I've learned the hard way. All of us, to some form, are, are guilty of bringing our own biases to things. That's, sure. Uh, so I have, I, I'll, I'll own that too. Uh, but I think it's you know it's again the idea of saying just because something worked in one context doesn't mean it's going to work in this. And so getting close enough to understand the situation, being proximate enough there, is really I think where the first phase, I guess, or a, a important phase in this transition from not working from heart alone to data is understanding the situation better, getting the data that helps inform that. And again, if we go back to outcomes, what is it producing, right? How is, right. what are the benefits it's creating and making sure that that's driving this? Because heart alone can't tell us that, right? Other than a few stories here and there or what we might have exposure to in a limited way, we, we're not able to say without the data, is it actually producing what we want? And so therefore, all that effort, all that desire, maybe for not, or maybe for far less efficient or effective outcomes versus something else if we had the data to help inform that. That makes a lot of sense. Talk about sort of the, the, the classic food pantry kind of idea and how that's a great sort of example, at least in my mind, of how this works. You know, there's two ways I'll, I'll frame this one, right? So one yeah. is the idea of like, oh, you know, 
people need food, so I'll give them food and everything will be better. Well, you know, it goes back to the, the silly analogy, right, of, you know, teach a person to fish instead of just giving them fish, right? And so there's that whole concept, I think, with not just with food pantries, but with any type of, of support that's provided is how do you do that in a way that is enabling versus a way that unintentionally traps people, right? Right. I'm going to respond to the situation I'm in and, and do that. Um, when it comes to things like government aid, you hear a lot of times this concept of a cliff effect. Uh, and I've had several opportunities to speak with Commissioner Carter, who's the commissioner for the Tennessee Department of Human Services. And you know, his, he's talked about this in the conversations I've had with him, where we try and help people get past a certain income level, but then a lot of these government benefits disappear. And you actually have to make a pretty significant jump right. in income but because what you do is, yeah, I might be making X thousands of dollars now, but because I've lost all these services, the net effect of that is I'm worse off now than I was when I was making $1 below that threshold. It's almost like you get a 95% tax bracket because you give up all those benefits to make an extra $10,000. Well, that's not really worth it. It doesn't. Yeah. And so that to me, that's a really good example of like unintentional, right? We're creating these benefits. And so in his mind, Commissioner Carter's mind, right? The idea here is that we've set some things up in a way that kind of almost trap people from progressing because they have to make such a big jump that that might seem insurmountable right. that they're better off staying you know, a little bit below a threshold than they are a little bit above the threshold. And so that's a good example kind of on that concept of it. The other concept is just the idea of like, if you haven't thought it out, you're creating something that's wrong. So like if I've created a food pantry and I've put it where my church is because that's my congregation wants to do something and, and give back... The expectation, right, is, okay, great, I'm offering free food. People are going to come, right? I, I'm going to, you know, people are going to want to want the type of food we've collected because it's the kind yeah. of food that we eat. And, uh, you know, this is a good time because it's a good time for us. Like, there's not things going on. And so, you know, we take that perspective that we often view from our own paradigm and say, well, this should produce the result we want. Well, the reality is that sometimes if I put this where it's convenient for me and my church, that may not be where it's convenient for people who need the food, right? Right, And so they either, one, aren't aware of it, <laughs> or two, may not have the ability to get to where we are uh, in doing that. And so therefore, we have a, a, that's one potential barrier, right, for achieving the outcomes that we want. Right? Another one could be around, you know, we talked about the types of foods, right? Right. Um, you know, if, it's, if, if there's cultural differences in types of food, regardless of, you know, based on numerous things. And so just because I like that food doesn't mean you're going to like it and it doesn't mean others are going to like it. And so by blindly just thinking about the food that I like, being assuming that's the food everybody likes, then people might get there and be like, oh, great, I got this food, but I either don't like it and can't palate it or I don't know how to cook it because I've never cooked something like this before. Yep. And you have other barriers, right, to achieving the outcomes of providing that food. I think it's interesting, not in a, a little bit of a tangent, even though we're running out of time, like, you, food, like in some cases, if you don't have time to prepare healthy food, that's not going to work. If you don't have, tra if, so that's probably connected to your transportation. If it takes you two hours to get on the bus back to your, from your uh, work, your place of work to your house, you're going to be exhausted. You're not going to want to prepare it. 
so you're going to need maybe pre-prepared or easily prepared types of food. Well, that's typically not that horribly healthy, which has its other issues. But then think about something uh, here in Memphis. We recently had ice and uh, about a week of power outages. How, how are you going to fix food if you have no power, right? Or not? you don't have a microwave or, or whatever. It's, I think that is a classic example of how interconnected all of these issues are. And if you don't get data, while you are asking, at best, you're asking to not be as effective. At worst, you're going to cause problems. Right. And that data doesn't have to be massive, right? right. Like yeah. in this case, it's like, okay, right? If, if I'm trying to accomplish providing healthy food to people who have less access to that, what are the different factors would allow that to be most successful, right? And so there's research around that that we could go and understand. And then just talk to the people, right? Like, hey, yeah. like, what are the challenges you're having? Like, what kind of foods, you know, do you find most helpful, right, that fit within, you know, the types of foods you like, the, the types of foods you know how to prepare, like, within your situation? You can easily overcome some of those things with a little bit more than just the heart of trying by asking a few of these questions, by getting more proximate and understanding the need in a, in a more detailed way so that you can combine that, that desire and that heart of caring with, again, the things that will allow it to have the outcomes that are also part of that desire. Yeah. And, you know, going back to some things you said in previous episodes, I mean, the simplest and most important probably starting point for getting data is ask the people you want to help. What do you need, right? How can we help? Let's wrap this up. There is a definite need for intuition and heart, and there's a definite need for data. Um, where is that place for the heart? If it's not maybe in the driver's seat, it still needs to be probably in the front seat. I don't know how to make that analogy. But but talk about that for just a second as we wrap up. Yeah, so I, to me, I think the heart is the foundation of, of impact, right? And so it needs to be the starting point in my mind of, of that passion, that desire, um, you know, to care for, for, for others and to contribute and, you know, help. And then it needs to be along, right, in that passenger seat along the entire way. Because again, we don't want to lose focus of why we're doing all of this, this work, all these nonprofits, that, that we can't lose sight of that. But it has to be supplemented and, and I almost view like the data as a compass, right, guided, by the data, the research, and the evidence that can help us actually achieve what we want to, right? I can get in a car and say, hey, I want to get to California and jump on the road and not have a map or Google Maps or anything like that. Maybe I'll get there, but I'm sure going to take a lot of wrong turns and I'm sure not going to end up there. And who knows, right? Maybe I'll end up in Seattle or somewhere else. But if I can get in the car with that desire to go somewhere and I have some of the resources to help me do it, one, not only do I get there a heck of a lot faster, but two, I can get there a lot more efficiently too, right? And effectively, I can say, all right, I got there within the time frame I wanted to and all that. And so that's where for me, the starting point is heart. It's along the journey. It's the foundation for how I think all impact and philanthropic uh, support should be done. But the, the compass, the guide for that needs to be supplemented with the data, the research, the evidence uh, that allows us again to achieve the outcomes that we want. Otherwise, we're driving blind if we want to go back to the, the driving analogy. I love it. The guys in the engineering booth are throwing stuff at us. We got to land the plane. I would say go to the uh, slingshotmemphis.org website, wealth of information. Edgillentine.com also has a resource center that we like to think as a wealth of information. Check these things out, check these uh, concepts out. If you don't wrestle with them, you are at best going to limit your impact, and at worst, you're going to cause more harm than good. Thanks for listening. 
Thank you for listening. We love your feedback, so please let us know what you thought about this episode as well as what you'd like to hear more of in the future. For more information, impact resources, or to purchase a copy of the book, Journey to Impact, visit edgillentine.com. That's E-D-G-I-L-L-E-N-T-I-N-E.com. The book is also available through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Target.com. For Ed Gillentine speaking inquiries or advertising opportunities, send us an email at ajourneytoimpact at gmail.com. This has been a presentation of the Journey to Impact podcast team. Executive producer, Ed Gillentine. Associate producer, Meredith Taylor. Produced and edited by Joey Woodruff. Special thanks to Stephen Chandler. Mm